Welcome to Turning Points, Clearway Capital Solutions podcast series, where we talk to leading investment managers and general partners in their respective asset classes about the evolution of their markets and how they are responding to these changes. Established in 2008, Clearway Capital Solutions is an independent and privately owned company, providing business development and capital advisory services to investment managers in alternative and traditional asset classes who are seeking to engage with Australian and New Zealand investors and their consultants. The Turning Points podcast series provides listeners with direct access to the insights of our investment partners. This podcast is for educational and illustrative purposes only and does not constitute and should not be relied upon as financial advice. The podcast will be provided to listeners on the basis that they are either sophisticated or professional investors. Today we are joined by Leonard Hermans, Environmental Research Director from Osmosis Investment Management. Osmosis Investment Management manages developed market equity portfolios using their proprietary investment database, the MORE database, which stands for Model of Resource Efficiency. The database identifies companies utilising objective, publicly disclosed data, which are generating greater economic value per resource input, the resource inputs being energy consumption, water consumption and waste production, than their sector peers. Osmosis believes that forward-thinking companies that take a proactive approach to a more sustainable future deliver greater value to their shareholders. Osmosis manages core and active systematic strategies with the objective of generating repeatable alpha in resource-efficient global and regional-based equity portfolios. Leonard, thanks for joining us on Turning Points today. It'd be great to start with you giving us a sense of the proportion of companies that provide sufficient carbon, water and waste data in their reporting and how this has changed since the Paris Agreement was signed in 2015. Yeah, sure. So corporate environmental disclosure is actually something that goes back a few decades. You know, we see the first companies report non-financial data as early as the 70s or, or, or the 80s and talking here about you know, very heavy industries, um, mining companies, chemical companies that following pressure, uh, societal pressure, stop provide some data on, on, on spills or accidents, etc. And and since then, it's really, you know, really penetrated every single sector of our economy. It's it's slowly evolving from from best practice to standard practice within every sector, within every every region. Um, at the moment, at Osmosis, our, our model of resource efficiency, we cover about 85, 86% of target universe by the index rating. So that's 85, 86% of companies that provide sufficient data on, on their carbon emissions, water, dis, uh, water consumption and waste generation to create a resource efficiency, a resource efficiency assessment. So that's, you know, pretty, pretty high disclosures. Now, when we go back to 2015, um, you know, when the Paris Agreement was signed, we, we do see quite significant increase since then. Uh, I think in, in Europe, eight years ago, we saw about 70% of companies disclosing carbon, water and waste to roughly 65%. At the moment, that's that's near universal, uh, at least for carbon, and, and the increase for water and waste is also quite significant. But the largest increase we've seen is in North America, where probably around the Paris Agreement, we were hovering around disclosure figures at 40 45%, which currently almost doubled um, to 70 or 80% for carbon and, and increased by 50% to um, for water and waste. So quite significant disclosure levels um, across sectors, across regions. Are certain industry sectors or regions 
slash countries more compliant than others or is compliance more company specific? Are there detectable patterns amongst the laggards? Yeah, I mean, environmental disclosure is, is definitely something that depends on the context of a company's operations. Um, you know, whether that's kind of local regulation, regulatory frameworks where it operates, or the perceived materiality of, of the data. And, and that's definitely something that's ultimately very industry or sector specific. Um, when we look at, you know, the more granular disclosure trends, disclosure levels, depending on sector, industry or region, we definitely see some some interesting patterns there. The first one is um, that the heavier industries tend to be the best reporting ones or the most universal reporting ones. Um, when we look at chemicals companies, pharmaceuticals, automobiles, mining, energy companies, we have um, sufficient environmental data to construct an environmental balance sheet for nearly all companies in our sample. Um, less intensive sectors, you know, those traditionally been less exposed to investor pressure, to, to stakeholder pressure, um, disclose much less. Uh, so when you go, for example, to software sector or support service industries, the, the kind of availability of data um, is, is much less there. And then obviously we also see some, some geographical trends. Um, Europe, Japan, Asia um, have a much stronger kind of tradition, I guess, um, around environmental disclosure. We see more structured, uh, more mature mandatory reporting schemes um which are starting to appear in in north america and in the us um but their disclosure definitely is is lower than the rest of the our, our sample and that doesn't mean that these companies are performing worse on the environmental metrics that they have a, a negative score that they are uh, inefficient with the use their use of natural resources um it's really just a um indicator of disclosure level an indicator of transparency are companies more compliant in regards to reporting carbon data compared to water and waste? Why do you think that is? And how does Osmosis deal with that challenge? Yeah. So definitely carbon is the, the most, the best uh, metric that is disclosed in our sample. It's, it's, and, and not just the best disclosed, I guess it's also the most standardized disclosed metric. Um, you have the greenhouse gas protocol, which is kind of an international accepted framework for companies to, to use to, to measure, report their carbon emissions. Um, and I guess it doesn't necessarily ensure accuracy or, or even easy implementation of this data. It's clear that the focus of a lot of companies, uh, of a lot of investor pressure, a lot of regulatory pressure, a lot of engagement campaigns have been targeting carbon disclosure above water and waste, um, which, you know, it is good. It means that we have a lot of carbon data, um, but we definitely need to kind of help companies or, or push companies to to make sure that they include water and waste um, as well. What strategies does Osmosis employ to encourage companies to provide adequate disclosures on carbon, water and waste? Yeah, absolutely. Because ultimately we still believe that, you know, you can't separate climate from the environment you know you you cannot just have a myopic focus on on, on carbon data while completely ignoring what a company is doing with the other natural resources and there, there is obviously climate crisis having a rate but there's also a um a water crisis and, and and we have to be efficient with our materials so we would argue and and, and we see companies arguing in as well that that all three metrics are almost equally important and then you know, when we see companies that are either not disclosing anything at all, 
um, or they are singularly disclosing carbon without water and waste. Um, then, then we do have a few tools at our disposal, but it is obviously it's a it's a it's a slow and difficult process. Now, we do. I, I guess our fundamental belief at Osmosis is that we believe that every single company within their operations, within their kind of processes, within their how they create value, um, relies on energy, relies on materials, and relies on water to produce that value. Um, and therefore, because every company is using energy materials and water, they should be managing that, they should be reporting that, they should be using those natural capitals um, efficiently. Obviously, like we, we do recognize there's, you know, for some sectors, for some industries, it might be even more important, or there might be a difference in perceived materiality of these factors. Um, but, but we definitely believe they matter for companies across the spectrum. And so that's why we can push and why we choose to push for companies for full disclosure across the economic spectrum. So we don't go, um, you know, prioritize carbon over water or waste over water or water over any of the other metrics. Now, our first method to, to push companies, to encourage companies to disclose is direct engagement. Um, so we have obviously quite a large environmental research team at the Osmosis um, offices here. And within our target universe, we we collect our own environmental data and where we can't find data we engage directly within the team at least annually with every single company where we can't find sufficient data um, and through that engagement we try to explain the importance of this data how it's used within our models how it kind of feeds into our investment processes um, and we try to share best practices from um, peers, competitors of those companies, trying to showcase that companies within their sector, within their sample, within their region, are disclosing this data at a very high level, and, and that we believe there's no reason these companies shouldn't be doing it. Um, but we also try to understand the reasons of those corporates for non-reporting and, and try to work with them um, when they show a willingness to disclose, trying to help them kind of prioritize which metrics to focus on, uh, which frameworks they can use, and how to integrate this. When we, um, you know, when, when, when that is fruitful, we team up as well with other like-minded investors or engagement campaigns, um, the kind of so-called collaborative engagement campaigns, uh, helps us obviously to amplify our voice, helps us to um, team up with, with other investors to, to kind of increase the weight of that disclosure. Um, obviously gives us less flexibility or kind of less control over, over what we discuss. And this is where we often then, um, carbon becomes the, the main focus of these collaborative engagement campaigns. And then ultimately, you know, we, we, we really use this data into our, into our models. Um, we, we care about company disclosure because we cannot, when we cannot find sufficient data, we're unable to create this resource efficiency assessment and we're unable to create this investment score. And it really reduces the potential pool of companies uh, in our for our portfolio management team that can utilize to build uh, these portfolios. So, you know, it's not something we kind of tag along or, or something that we think we have to do to kind of tick a box. It's, you know, the more companies that disclose this data, the more companies that provide us this environmental data, um it, it really does help our portfolio so it's, it is a core focus of the team how will reporting of higher quality environmental data help to allocate capital to low intensity companies and products mm. 
so yeah, good good data, good data is, is definitely the first necessary step. Um, it's it's hard to underestimate the importance of, of good data, of granular data to make a sound resource efficiency assessment of companies. And and you know, when we talk about good data or granular data, we're obviously trying talking about accuracy. Um, but in an ideal world, it also gives us kind of a good breakdown of you know where the emissions are coming from, what type of water are companies using. Um, what are the, the different types of waste that company is generating? And um, really that kind of granular level that gives us, a, gives us the ability to assess a company in, in a lot of detail, just like you expect with, with financial data. Um, and, and to harvest or to use that good data, we, we have built an entire team of analysts here, as I said, uh, with the sole focus of, of understanding, of cleaning, interrogating, standardizing corporate environmental data, because it's ultimately we really believe if you want to use this data if you want to find a signal in it if you want to put it to to use you need to put a lot of effort in it at the make at the moment to make it usable uh, and that's really because of the kind of the unstructured nature the the voluntary nature of this data it is you know it's available as we said a lot of companies are disclosing it but it needs a lot of work to make it make it usable now once you have that data set um there are still a lot of the different decisions you have to make in order to arrive at an investment signal, in order to arrive at a um, a metric or a signal that can, like you like you said, allocate. Can you help allocate capital to low intensity companies or low intensity products? It's it's not just the data. Uh, you know, do you treat seawater consumption differently to groundwater consumption? How do you separate hazardous from non hazardous waste, for example? We also have to find out or, or determine how you link that environmental balance sheet to the financial balance sheet. You know, how do you put this data into the context of into a financial context? Do you use revenue? Do you use enterprise value? Do you use capex? What is the the appropriate metric there? And then obviously you have to decide which companies. How do you compare companies to each other? How do you create buckets, sectors um, of of different different companies, which is which is very important. Um, how do you interpret the consumption of natural capital really relative to its peers, but who are a company's peers in from an environmental perspective? So it, it's not just, you know, obviously the, the good granular high quality data is the building block, is, is the foundation of, of this model, but you do need to build, or we believe at least, you do need to build a whole model with a lot of, you know, complex decisions in it to correctly use and deploy this data. Um, you know, you need to combine environmental analysis, quantitative analysis, financial analysis. You need to combine that all um, if you want to really understand how you can build a signal, how you can deploy it in a meaningful way. Some in the industry believe the reporting of scope three level disclosure is difficult to achieve as the quality is not at the same level as scope one and scope two data. For the benefit of listeners, scope three emissions are generated throughout the value chain. For example, upstream sources such as raw materials, mining and refining, and downstream sources such as distribution. Leonard, what are your thoughts on scope three disclosures and how is Osmosis planning to deal with this issue? Um, very good question. I mean, we could we could talk a long time about scope three data, the challenges and, 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 and the use of it. I, I guess, first of all, you know, capturing and measuring, quantifying, these indirect environmental impacts, for example, through scope three emissions, is extremely difficult. You know, the, the reporting framework is very loose. There's a lot of choices, a lot of assumptions companies can make, companies are able to make, uh, which inherently lead 
to to incomparable or difficult to compare data you know and, and we just as, as lots of people in the industry see a lot of challenges with the data set um almost certainly leads to subjective choices um and I, I guess what's weird is that we see more and more estimated or so-called estimated scope three data sets out there um and and you know they try to kind of fill that gap or make the data comparable um fill the gaps of disclosure and unfortunately we've analyzed it quite in depth and we can see that those estimation figures first of all don't really reflect actual real environmental performance of companies in their value chain and their supply chain um, but secondly even worse because of the nature of these um, estimation models they often bias against not kind of environmental uh, laggards but bias against basically low revenue companies um, companies that just have less economic activity and, and therefore obviously have less you know emissions associated but that's not really what you want um or, or what you hope to when you implement a scope three data set so i think rather than relying on on estimation models uh or or of the shelf third party products i think we need to take a step back and, and really ask yourself what are we what are we trying to capture in our investment model you know what, what are we how are we trying to allocate money here um and our model really is based on the principle that if you can measure the operational efficiency of a company, how well a management team is, is, as I said, using that natural resources, energy, materials, water within its operations, within its processes, facilities, et cetera. If you can identify through that those metrics, good management teams, um, then you can identify an interesting investment opportunity. Our model, our investment model is, is really based on, on the principles that if you can measure the operational efficiency of a company, how well that management team is using the natural resources, energy, materials, water within its operations, within its processes, within its buildings, facilities, etc. Um, if you can do that, you can identify through that metric good management teams and therefore hopefully find interesting investment opportunities. Um, and naturally, this leads us to your direct emissions and your energy-related emissions, so scope one and two. But we do bring in scope three emissions if and where it fits the um, the investment objective. For example, emissions coming from business travel. You know, that's a scope three category. We will bring that back into account. We will take that into account while employee commuting emissions we won't. Now, business travel and employee commuting ultimately fundamentally very similar sources of carbon emissions. Um, but one, we believe, is directly under management control. So the business travel, a company can control that through travel policies, through kind of ways of working, while the other one isn't. We don't think a company should be measured against how their employees are, are commuting to the office. Where another example is where companies have joint ventures or subsidiaries who aim to bring in those scope three emissions back onto their own balance sheet. If we're confident, if we know that a company has operational control over those um, subsidiaries. Um, similarly, we're looking into bringing emissions back from leased assets on board for specific business models. So I think there are ways, very targeted ways to, to address scope tree emissions and to, to bring that back onto the environmental balance sheet. Now, in other areas, we use what we believe at least is more primary data to quantify, quantify the impact of those indirect emissions of those scope tree emissions. Um, an example there is, you know, you have a scope three category, which is called um, emissions stemming from processing of waste. Uh, so think about your, you know, the, the emissions from your bin lorries, from your waste treatment facilities, etc. So you can either 
incorporate that as a carbon figure or what we do and i think it's much more accurate you can incorporate just the total um number of waste generated by the company which is which is a metric they disclose which is a metric they can measure it's very physical um and through that you're addressing the same environmental effect but a much more primary much more um pure data form so as I said, we can keep talking about this for ages and ages, but it's it's a really complex topics. Um, we are we do think you can bring it in, um, but it's very important to to have you know first of all a clear investment philosophy, making making it clear to yourself what the data is you're looking at, and and secondly, really understand the value, the significance, the quality of each data point before before implementing it into your investment process. More recently, the International Sustainability Standards Board, the ISSB, issued its inaugural standards, IFRS S1 and IFRS S2, which will hopefully encourage companies to consistently provide baseline sustainability-related disclosures for annual reporting periods. What do you think the impact will be regarding the implementation of these standards on the level and quality of climate data disclosure? It's a very good question again. You know, we're we're generally very supportive of these these initiatives. Um, you know, IS, ISSB is the the latest one in a long um, sequence of of similar initiatives, and, and we do believe that to a certain extent they have led to the increase in data availability over the last years, which we which we discussed in the first point. You know, that increase in data um, is. To an extent being pushed by the likes of ISSB and its predecessors. Every time one of these new initiatives is launched, we see often higher profile backers uh, than, than the previous time. We see more companies or countries or stock exchanges um, mentioning it, and we see that uptick in disclosure. So, yes, they have absolutely kind of have led to um, more universal disclosure, to, to better, like I say, better baseline data, etc. Now, what we have seen in the past is that increasingly these these initiatives, these pushes for disclosure, focus very much on the on the subjective, on the qualitative part of sustainability, rather than tightening the kind of the reporting frameworks on the quantitative data. And uh, so, to give an example, you know, companies are increasingly being mandated, and and the framework around disclosure is is strengthening around, for example, risk and opportunities, or transition planning, or how sustainability is linked to executive compensation, et cetera, um, which is obviously is, is valuable information. It's quite difficult to implement in a quantitative model like ours, whereas we believe there's still a need to, to further regulate, to further dictate how companies, um, you know, what the underlying assumptions are and the underlying choices are for measuring, reporting, you know, basic environmental metrics, really, like carbon emissions, water consumption and waste generation. So. Um, again, it's quite a nuanced stance, you know, these, these initiatives have definitely increased um, disclosure and have led to kind of an increase in consistency um, of, of environmental disclosures, but their scope is quite wide. Um, and, and we, you know, I guess it's our belief that we should pay more attention to the quantitative, to the objective side of sustainability rather than to the, to the subjective side. Um, so it's a nuanced answer. How do you think artificial intelligence can assist companies in, in improving their reporting of carbon, water and waste data? Large language models can be potentially very energy hungry. So is there a downside to AI? I think there's definitely a downside. There's, there's probably a lot of upsides as well. 
um, and I'm sure kind of as we go along and as we we get to know AI and, and machine learning models better, um, there, there will be good uses of of these techniques and these technologies in reporting carbon water and waste, but also from our side in, in the kind of collection of this data, the building up the interpretation of this data set. But there are also definitely downsides. Uh, and obviously our expertise lies in, in the kind of collection of this data, building a data set, building an environmental database based on the how companies have reported their data. And that downside, I think they are obviously very energy hungry, very kind of intensive, um, but it really lies in the accuracy of the results. Um, you know, as we discussed, it's not a well-regulated disclosure environment. It's not a very standardized disclosure environment. Companies really set their own definitions, customized frameworks to suit their needs. They, they provide partial disclosures. Um, and we've analyzed a lot of AI machine learning generated data sets. And, and time and time again, we see ultimately very um, fundamental issues which results. Uh, some companies disclose their domestic emissions for, separate from international operations and the ai model will pick either one of them and believe it's a total emission figure we see instances where companies include um where for some companies it includes renewable energy discounts um in the emissions figure while for others it doesn't leading to inherently incomparable data points really comparing apples and oranges if you just believe that result um kind of to the ledger you know, companies making reporting errors or unit errors, uh, machines misinterpreting decimal points and commas, etc. There's there's a lot of issues, you know, with with how this data is reported. That at the moment, um, we we don't see AI machines or machine learning kind of algorithms can really run over these reports and, and create an environmental database that's that will help you identify those leaders and laggards. So at the moment, we really do believe it's 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 absolutely necessary to commit the time, energy, and resources to to build that clean, standardized data set yourself, to build your understanding regarding of how that natural resource consumption is relates to companies' business models, to define and group companies within their peers, to interrogate every single data point and engage with the corporate where necessary. And so, you know, that work, you know, AI machine learning tools will help us identify, we'll be able to to complement that work or, or increase uh, the efficiency of that work. But the interpretation currently still definitely needs a manual touch to it. Leonard, thanks again for joining us on Turning Points. Thank you. It was a pleasure. <laughs>